Well, good morning, everyone. Just a couple of quick little announcements or little comments, I guess. Uh, first of all, just a, uh, some gratitude uh, to express to those who were able to come to the men's retreat this year. As expected, Trey did a great job. But I was reminded again this year that no matter who we have come speak, whether he's known or unknown, whether he's powerful or academic or it doesn't matter the spectrum, uh, what is the most meaningful outcome of the men's retreat is the time that men have together with one another <laughs> and, and the conversations that take place in between sessions and just being with each other. It was a rich time of uh, fellowship together, and so I'm, I'm very grateful for that and grateful for the, for the men who were uh, able to make the commitment. I hope if you didn't come uh, this time that you will next time because um, it's worth your worth your effort. The second thing, just a quick reminder, if you expressed an interest in Israel 2020, uh, so next June, taking a trip to Israel with folks from Melanie Park, uh, we're having a real quick informational meeting immediately after the service right up front here in the church sanctuary. So if that's of interest to you, and whether you signed up or not, if you just want to know more, please feel welcome to come and learn more about that trip. So... We're going to continue in our study of Acts this morning, and as we do, I want to remind you that the mission of the church is to go and make disciples. That's not news to anyone here. You are familiar with that, but I do want to remind you because I do think we overlook this second part, and it's this. It's not an easy path. There's a cost to discipleship. Diedrich Bonhoeffer, one of my favorite authors, he was a German pastor during the time of Hitler, says this, a very famous statement that he once made when he said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. Jesus says it this way, he says, if anyone comes after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So it's not hard to see that discipleship is not an easy path. That's why I think our study in Acts is so important, because it gives us a realistic picture of what it means to follow Christ. On one hand, we've seen tremendous growth, haven't we, through the development of the early church, what started with 12 disciples, instantly spread at Pentecost to thousands of people. There's thousands who believed there in Jerusalem in that day. And then from there, we know that the message of the gospel has spread from Jerusalem into Judea, and then into Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. But we need to be reminded that the primary reason that the message of the gospel is spreading is because of the presence of persecution. People like Stephen... And James have been martyred. They've been killed for their confession of Christ as Savior. Causing people like Philip to flee for their lives into other places like Samaria, which is why we see the spread of the gospel. But everywhere these people go, they're taking the good news of the gospel with them. As Paul tells the Romans, he says, the gospel is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes. So as a result of that truth, the church continues to flourish even in the midst of persecution. As we learned back in 
chapter 12. At the very end, it says, But the word of the Lord continued to grow and to be multiplied. And one of the reasons it's being multiplied is because of people like Barnabas. We talked a little bit about him a few weeks ago. And not only did Barnabas take Saul under his wing when nobody else trusted him, but Barnabas was the, also the one who went to look for Saul when everyone else had forgotten him. Remember, he went from Antioch into Tarsus where Paul had fled. He finds Tarsus, brings him back to Antioch, and invites him into a life of ministry. That ministry continues to grow. He brought others along. We learned last time that he brings along his cousin, Mark. It says at the end of chapter 12, verse 25, And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their mission, taking along with them John, who is also called Mark. Mark is young. He's inexperienced, but Barnabas wants to help him understand what it means to grow and to, to walk with the Lord. He wants to invite him into a life of discipleship. He invited Mark to join he and Saul in the, the mission that God had called them to spread the word of Christ, to go and make disciples. But it won't be easy. And that is something that Mark will soon learn for himself, as we will see. You see, I think we're all naturally inclined to things that are new and exciting. I mean, good grief, that's why the cell phone industry is what it is today, because everybody's looking for the next upgrade, the next new thing, the next advancement in technology. And as Christians, we're not immune to that, even in the church. We are drawn to, to movements that promise to, to impact the world for Christ, and that's great. But remember, there's a cost to discipleship. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. And yet, no matter what the cost, there is always a reward. Some of it experienced here, perhaps, but definitely the lion's share stored up for us in heaven. I love what Bonhoeffer talks about. He, he gives this a name, and I think it's a great name. He calls it costly grace. Costly grace. Here's how he describes that. Listen to it. He says, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock. He says such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. It's grace because he calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a man his life. It's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin. It's grace because it justifies the sinner. Listen to how he finishes. He says, above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought with a price. And what has cost God so much cannot be cheap for us. There's a cost to discipleship, but only because it brings glory to Christ. So before we look at our passage this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, as we come to you this morning, I pray that we do so with eyes wide open, that we see the truth of your word in ways that penetrate 
deeply into our heart, even maybe breaking through some of the misconceptions, misunderstandings, mistruths that we've gained over time. Help us to be reminded that there's a cost to discipleship. There's a sacrifice to be made. After all, that's the message of the gospel, a sacrifice that was made because of a great love. So why would it be different for us as your disciples? So Lord, help us to live that out faithfully and to understand it more clearly as we look at your word this morning. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So if you would, turn to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, verse 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Um, Acts is the continuing story of the author of the Gospel of Luke, and so... Let's pick it up in verse 13 where he continues this story in verse 1. Now there were in Antioch, in the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Now I want to pause there because most of us, when we're reading through Scripture, come to a verse like this and we breeze right past the names because we don't know half of them listed. And we just move on to the next verse and miss out on some really important observations. We know about Barnabas and Saul, but who, who's Simeon and Lucius and Menaean? Clearly, they're leaders in the church of Antioch because they're identified as kind of their pastoral staff. They're at this new and, and growing church. And, and I want to submit to you this morning that what we learn about these men says something about what God is doing in his church. So, so let's look at how they're described. First, we have Simeon, who's also called Niger. Now, the word Niger in the original language means black. So very likely, the pastoral staff there at Antioch included a black man named Simeon. We also know that there's a man named Lucius. We know that he is from Cyrene. Now, we've talked about Cyrene before, and it's very possible that Lucius is one of those unknown witnesses who was proclaiming the truth of Christ from Cyrene into Phoenicia, into uh, Cyprus, and into Antioch. Maybe Lucius is one of those men. Now, what we also talked about is Cyrene is, is what modern-day Libya, northern Africa. Once again, it's very likely that Lucius was also black. And then you have Menean. All we know about him is that he was raised with Herod the Tetrarch, which means he was brought up in the home of the privileged. He was brought up with those who have special uh, opportunities like Herod, he was raised to be a ruler. But apparently, he was, Menaean was willing to, to walk away from that life of privilege to enter into a life of ministry. Then we have Barnabas from the island of Cyprus. We have Saul, who was the Pharisee, the former enemy of the church. So it doesn't take long to see what God's doing here. What a diverse group of men who are the leadership team of the greatest church planning movement the world has ever known. It's the fulfillment, 
I believe, of what Peter proclaimed when he was in the house of Cornelius and began to understand for the first time the magnitude of the message of the gospel and how far it reaches around the globe. I just want to remind you of what he says back in chapter 10, verse 34. This is Peter. It says, in opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. A man from every nation, every tribe, every tongue. And we just get a little snapshot of how God is fulfilling this promise here in the leadership of this church in Antioch. A diverse group of men leading a multicultural church, a church that will essentially become the headquarters of the greatest mission movements the world has ever known. So there's a lot to learn in those names that we just breeze right past, isn't there? Look at verse 2 as we continue. It says in verse 2, And while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work for which I have called them. Then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them out. Now, it's really important to understand the pattern of what's happening here. It began in verse 2 when we see the church is ministering to the Lord in fasting. Let me begin with that first phrase, ministering to the Lord, because it can mean any number of things. You can minister to the Lord through praise. You can minister to the Lord through serving. You can minister to the Lord through praying. It's anything that happens within your heart that exalts the name of God. So ministering to the Lord is when our heart is filled with praise. And apparently that's what's happening in the life of this church. It also says that they're fasting. Now fasting is similar, but it's kind of a practical step to create a, a better focus in our heart. See, Fasting obviously creates a physical hunger, right? And that physical hunger is intended to, to stimulate, to help us recognize a spiritual hunger. A hunger for the Lord, an appetite to, to know and to follow His will. So the, This is a church that is filled with heartfelt worship. People who are devoted to the Lord, who are taking practical steps to, to, to listen to to understand where he's leading and where he's guiding. I want you to notice that it was in the midst of their worship when God spoke to their hearts. It was in the midst of their worship when God spoke to their hearts. It says, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting. What we see here is not an independent revelation from the Lord. There is not a, a private message from God that is spoken by one uh, to the many. Instead, the calling of God comes from within the community of God. It was a calling that was affirmed by that same body of Christ. The reason I think this is important is because it is often very, very different than what we see happening in the church today. More often, we see an individual, a single person, come forward to inform the church of what God has put on their heart, something they feel sincerely compelled to do. 
But in Acts, it's not happening that way. Instead of an individual coming forward to the church, what we see is the church affirming the call of God in the lives of individuals. Do you see the difference? I think it's really important to see the way that God is working in the life of a community, speaking to the hearts of individuals, but being affirmed by the body of Christ. In our culture today, we live in a world of independence. Where every man does what is right in his own eyes, including those in the church. And what this is calling us to is to the corporate understanding of what it means to follow the call of God. Because the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Now I fully expect that the Spirit of God had been stirring in the hearts of Barnabas and Saul. But it was the church the church of Jesus Christ that was affirming the call of God in their lives. And notice the response of the church as God speaks to their hearts. Then they fasted and prayed. They received the Lord through fasting and prayer. They affirmed the Lord through fasting and prayer. No one is proudly proclaiming, hey, listen up, everybody. I've got a really important message given directly to me from God for all of you to hear. God spoke in the context of community. And those words were confirmed in the context of community. And as a result, Paul and Barnabas were sent out by the church to carry out the mission of the church to the uttermost parts of the world. Look at how the story continues in verse 4. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, and when they had reached Salamis, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they also had John, also called Mark, as their helper. It's really significant in my mind when you read the Bible with such great details. It helps affirm the authenticity. This is not vague references. These are very specific facts, aren't they? What we know from history is that Seleucia would have been the closest port city to Antioch. So if you're going to set sail from uh, Antioch, you're going to go to Seleucia, which is on the coast of the Mediterranean. And as you sail off into the Mediterranean, if you're going to go to Cyprus, you're going to land at the port city of Salamis. That's what's being described here. For, for them, during that time, I would expect Cyprus to be very similar to our modern-day Bahamas. It's an island that has both great luxury with great poverty, all in the same place. And so it was fertile ground for the message of hope because there were those who lived in this great luxury who realized that their wealth could not buy them happiness. They were still unsatisfied. They needed a message of hope. There were those who were living in great poverty who had want for so many things and, and so they were looking for that same message of hope to, to fill the need that they had in their heart. So Barnabas and Saul set sail, entering the island of Cyprus to proclaim the word of God. And they began in the synagogues. Now, what happens here is both practical and theological. And I want us to, to understand why. It was practical because the Jews had a context in which to receive the message of of salvation they were looking for a messiah right 
they were relying on a promise of God to send a Savior who would rescue them. They were all anticipating that. So it made sense that you would go to that people who had that heart expectantly awaiting that promise. And so it was very practical for Barnabas and Saul to go to that place to speak to those people to tell them Jesus is the Messiah that you're waiting for. He is the one who has fulfilled that promise of God. But it's also theological. Because we know from Scripture that the people of Israel are the chosen people of God. Jesus was a Jewish Messiah. That passage that I quoted to you earlier says, The gospel is the power of God to bring salvation to everyone who believes. It goes on and says, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. So Barnabas and Saul are taking this message of salvation. And as we learn, Mark is being mentored as a helper in that work of ministry. They're fulfilling the Great Commission to go and make disciples. But let me remind you once again, it is not an easy path. Let's see how that unfolds in verse 6. And when they had gone through the whole island... As far as Paphos, they found a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet whose name was Bargesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. This man summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God, but Elimus, the magician, for thus his name is translated, was opposed, opposing them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. We learn that the magician's name is Elimus. It's a name that literally means wise or skillful one. But everybody knows him by the name Bargesus. It literally means the son of salvation. The author tells us that this man was a Jewish false prophet. In other words, he deals in deception. That's his role. And when he encounters Baal, Paul and, or Saul and, and Barnabas, what we're going to have here is an old-fashioned showdown of faith. Both sides are proclaiming a message of salvation. One is pointing to the person and work of Christ. The other one is pointing to himself. One is wanting to invite others to put their trust in Christ. The other is pulling them away from Christ. Elimus is speaking from a place of great power and influence. We learn that he's in the court of the governor, a very powerful ruler in that Roman government in that time. So he had the ear of the most powerful people in the world at that time. Now, we don't know a whole lot about the governor, Sergius Paulus, other than he's described as a man of intelligence. I think based on what we see in this passage, we're going to learn that he's intelligent because he's smart enough to understand there's always something more to learn. He's intelligent because he's teachable. He's got a humble heart. And he's about to learn something really important about this battle for truth. Look at what it says in verse 9. But Saul, who is also known as Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, fixed his gaze upon him. And he said, you who are full of all deceit and fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease to make crooked the straight ways of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, 
and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and a darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. From this point on, we learn that Saul now transitions into Paul. That's his Roman name. And it makes sense because the primary focus of his ministry will be the Gentiles. And so he would want to function in that Roman name of Paul. So this is where that transition takes place. He's known as Saul all the way up to verse 9. And now in verse 9, he will be called Paul from this point forward. Here we see him confronting a Jewish magician who is an obstacle to faith. He's misrepresenting the truth. In short, he's a con artist. And what Paul says to him is really significant. He looks him straight in the eyes and he says, you are full of all deceit and pride. You are a dealer in deception. You are a con artist. Satan is the father of lies and you are his son. As a son of Satan, you are an enemy of God. You're creating confusion, making a straight path crooked where God has brought clarity. Now, you can imagine this battle if you were there after hearing Paul speak, you would think, whoa, that's a strong rebuke. I mean, how is he going to respond to that? The truth is, he doesn't. He doesn't because God is at work to prove the power of truth over lies. Elimus is blinding others from seeing the truth. And so, the one who has been blinding others is now going to become blind. I think what's interesting is the way it's described in that passage where there's a, a mist and a darkness that fell upon him. What I believe is being described here is his vision became a mirror of his soul. Filled with darkness. Instead of leading others astray, we learn that he has to be led by others just to find his way home. In this battle for truth, the gospel has prevailed. The power of God has proved superior to the domain of darkness. That's what's happening here. Look at the response in verse 12. Then the proconsul, a man of intelligence with a teachable heart, believed. When he saw what had happened, being amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Because the Roman governor had a teachable heart, he believed. He put his faith in Christ as the provision of God for the salvation of all who believe. It says, interestingly, that he was amazed. But notice what he was most amazed by. Not necessarily the miracle performed or the judgment in this case, but it says that he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. He wasn't just impressed by the miracle, he was convicted. He was convinced of the clarity of the gospel. It wasn't this crooked path of of deception. It was a very clear path of, of consistent truth. And because he was an intelligent man, because he had a teachable heart, he was able to see that for himself. He understood that we were created to live in a life-giving relationship with God. And that sin is a barrier to that relationship. It's like a, a veil that covers our eyes. 
preventing us from seeing the truth. See, like Elimus, we are also blinded by our own selfishness, by our own pride. But as we've often sung in this church, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. That saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind. But now I see. That, I believe, is what is so amazing to the governor. He understands the grace of God and the forgiveness that is found through faith in Christ alone. And in that instant, he was redeemed from the domain of darkness to live in that life-giving relationship with God that he and everyone on this planet was created for. He was a man of great power and influence, but he was teachable enough to realize that that power and influence would not satisfy the hole in his heart. Not his personal accomplishments, not the people who he knew, no matter how impressive he might be. Instead of relying on his own wisdom, he trusted in the truth of God. And as a result, his eyes were opened. And when his eyes were opened, as is the case for every single one of us, we are amazed by the grace and the goodness and the forgiveness and love of our Savior. So, as we finish up this morning, I want us to go back to this idea of costly grace. And I want us to kind of revisit that a little bit and kind of personalize it into our own lives. And so with that in mind, let me ask you this question. What is the cost of discipleship in your life? What does it look like? What is the cost of discipleship in your life? I think a really important one is what we just witnessed with what took place in this battle for truth. Being a disciple requires you, as we see with the governor, to relinquish control. Like the governor, you cannot rely on your own strength, your own wisdom, your own abilities. But you've got to be amazed at the teaching of the Lord. You've got to rely on Him for truth that you do not possess on your own. Because remember, when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. See, dying to self is a big part of what it means to, to be a disciple, living for the good of others. Just look at the example of Barnabas. You don't really have to go any farther than that to, to see what it looks like for a man to die to himself so that he is consistently, over and over, investing in the lives of other people. We see it with what he did with Saul. When no one else believed in him, he took Saul under his wing until he was able to show that the evidence of God was at work in his life and he became an important minister of the gospel. Thank the Lord for Barnabas because of what we've been able to receive from Paul. Amen? Thank the Lord for Barnabas who looks at his young cousin, Mark, instead of relegating him to a place with the family says, no, I want you to come into a work of ministry. Just come under my, my wing and let me show you by you being a part of what God has called us to do. You see, his mission was to raise up the next generation 
of Christian disciples. That's what Barnabas gave us the example of. That's what it looks like. And it cost him. It cost him time. It cost him energy. And so let me ask you, will you be willing to pay that price? Are you willing to to have that cost of, of time and that cost of energy? And not because it's something you do once you've fulfilled your other priorities. It's something you do because it is your priority to go and to make disciples. You have been called into that work of ministry because it's a call to ministry for every single follower of Jesus Christ. No exceptions. But it will cost you. See, I'm convinced that this church needs more men who are willing to invest in the lives of younger men. And it can't depend on the elders. It can't depend on a new program. It has to come from a heart that is committed to a life of ministry as a priority over a life of comfort because you are willing to pay the price to invest in the lives of other people for the good of the name of Christ. And really the same is true for women in our church as well. We need both. In fact, I believe the ministry of this church is deeply dependent upon the effectiveness of mentoring in this church. Cross-generational relationship. And do you realize, let me remind you again, that if you look at the cross-section of this church here on 66th and Indiana, it looks vastly different than many of the churches in this city and in this world today. The amount of generational span we have here is remarkable. It is a gift. And so we ne- may we never overlook that gift by living within our generational circles and not investing into those around us who are of a different generation. And it goes both ways. One of the things that I learned from the men's retreat this weekend, just as a personal takeaway for me, is that our greatest impact in our world is not just simply the effectiveness of ministry in the church. But instead, our greatest impact in the world is the effectiveness in ministry in people's lives that then go impact the world. So that what happens in here, just think about it, it's just the economies of scale, right? So if we could dramatically impact 200 people in the room this morning, that would be awesome. And I would love to see that. Praise God for that. But if we could take 200 people in this room who then go impact two more people, just two. We won't even, we won't even say ten. We'll say two. Can you just do the math and see how much of a greater return on the investment we have when that happens? That's where the impact happens. Not just what happens in this room, but more importantly, what happens outside of this space in the place where you spend most of your time, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your classroom. Because here's the reality. That spiritual battle that we saw played out in our passage this morning is not an isolated incident. There is a battle for truth going on every single day we live, including today, including right now. 
Right now in this world, we are living in the midst of spiritual warfare. There are things happening in this room right now that are keeping people from focusing on the truth of God because there's a lot of alimuses in the world who are dealing in deception in ways that distract you from the truth in hopes that you won't believe. That spiritual battle is not an isolated incident. It is an everyday reality in the world in which we live. And here's the thing we need to remember. As long as those who know the truth stay silent, the enemy wins. The enemy wins when we are silent. We need people who are willing to speak the truth in love, to be gentle, to be kind. Don't be rude. Don't be obnoxious. But speak the truth in love. Point them to the person and work of Christ that Church needs people who will speak the truth in love. And more than just words that you say, but in the life that you live, so that you give evidence of amazing grace. It's seen in your family. It's seen in your marriage. It's seen in the joy that you bring. We talked about at our retreat this weekend about the reality that some of us live, and thankfully not me because my staff is here so I can say this, I don't work in a miserable place, right? I'm, I'm grateful to come to work every day, but that's not true for everyone. You work in some really hard places with some really difficult people and maybe an unfair boss. How penetratingly powerful would it be if you showed up to work in that environment with a heart filled with joy? That makes no sense whatsoever. Other than you have a joy in the Lord that supersedes the circumstances that you may live and work in. And that's a work of God. But it's important to understand, and this is really, really vital, that none of this happens naturally. Okay? This is a supernatural work of God, just like we saw in our passage this morning. It happens when a church is ministering to the Lord, when they're involved in a life of ministry, fasting and praying. Not the result of a program or even individual motivation to go and, and make a difference for the world. As, as nice as that would be. Instead, it's the collective response of the people of God who have a shared desire out of a worship for the Lord to go and make a difference in the world as disciples for Christ. So a good question that we should ask ourselves at this point is, okay, what does that look like for Melanie Park Church? How do we get there? Well, here's the answer. I believe we get there on our knees. We get there by what is happening in our passage. People who are praying and not not just prayers before bed that are just sometimes superficial and, and let's just work through the list and move on. I'm talking fervent prayer. I'm talking prayer that involves fasting to focus your heart on the Lord so that you can hear what He's saying as you trust in Him, as you look to Him. He speaks to the heart of people whose hearts are filled with worship. And if that describes who we are, then he speaks into that community. That's who we need to be. That's what it looks like. That's the supernatural work of God. So as we finish up this morning, what's the most important thing we need to do before we leave here? 
If you can't answer this question, you haven't heard anything in my sermon. <laughs> What's the most important priority of the church? Prayer. Prayer. Thank you for that answer. <laughs> I feel validated. And so I do want us to take some time to pray, but let me give you a word of caution with this, okay? I don't want you to pray for what you think the church ought to be. What you think this church ought to be. Here's what I want you to pray. I want you to pray that you would be teachable so that you can be the man or woman God wants you to be so that you can fulfill the commission of what He wants this church to be. See the difference? So you pray for a teachable and humble heart. You pray for a heart that is fervent and devoted to prayer. You pray for a community of believers whose hearts are filled with worship as a context through which the Spirit of God might speak. And if we are that people, He will speak into our lives and He will lead away. That's a promise. Not a crooked path, but a very straight and consistent, clear path. And let's just ask Him to do that. And let's begin with praying for where our heart is in that process. So just take some time to do that now, please. Father, we want to be the church that you want us to be. We want to go in the direction that you are leading and guiding. And we know that that has to come through hearts that are filled with worship. Ministering to the Lord through praise, through prayer, through serving. And that you would speak into the context of this community of believers to guide us in the path that you want us to fulfill your purpose in our lives. Collectively, as a body of believers. Would you clearly confirm? Would you clearly direct? Would you clearly move into the lives of this church to fulfill your purpose in the world? And so Lord, I just pray that perhaps this morning in some small way, we would transition from the prayer of what we think our church needs to be to a prayer that is humble enough to recognize that we need to be the people you desire us to be before any of us can become the church that you called us to be. So may we begin that process and that prayer even, even today. Amen. So I'm always deeply encouraged, as I was this weekend, by the men and women in this body of Christ. There are so many of you who are living this out well. But I love what we see with the governor, who was an intelligent man. And yet there was still something that he could learn. And for all of us, no matter where we are, there are places in our lives that we can grow in faithfulness. But it has to begin with a prayer of surrender. willingness to pay the cost to make personal sacrifices for the good of others so just continue in that heart of prayer and then let me encourage you to take another step and that is to extend that prayer into your conversations and as we live life in community let's just see where the lord might direct us because of how he speaks to us as we live in community with one another to fulfill what he's calling us to do. Amen? Let's carry it on. Have a great day.